You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, hey, good morning. Like, like Tyler said, my name is Doug. I serve as one of our pastors, and uh, Tim is gone. So many of you have been asking, where's Tim? Here's the truth. I have no idea. And I think that's how he wants it, and I think it's how we want it too, right? Because wherever he is, he's just getting healthy, and I think he's happy, and I'm sure he is getting refreshed and recovered from just leading us so well for these past few years. Um, As Tyler said, we're starting a new series called Letters to Live By, and it's not an easy series for he and I to be teaching, because what we have to do is take an entire book of the Bible and in 30 minutes or less, tell you the one big point from that book of the Bible, and then tell you what difference that makes in your life, okay? Now, we can typically do one or the other. We can be very accurate in telling you something from the Bible, or we can be very applicable. Here's the problem. Nobody that came to the 915 was standing around in the lobby and said to you, wow, you're going into 11? Super accurate sermon. You're going to love it. Most accurate sermon you've heard all day. Like, accuracy is nice, But what most of us come in is we say, how does this apply? Like, what do I do with this? As a matter of fact, I was at the gym this week, and a young man from our church, he just casually said to me, he goes, hey, when I read the Bible, sometimes it makes a lot of sense to me. But a lot of times I'm like, I don't really know what I just read. And then he asked a question. He goes, how do you even know what you're supposed to speak on on Sundays? And I was like, I really don't, okay? Um, What we try to do is whatever we feel God's called us to teach is we want to teach you accurately and applicably in your life. So for the next four weeks, we're going to take a book of the Bible, and we're going to try to teach you the one big idea, and then what difference that makes in your life. Louis Giglio tried to describe doing this. He's a famous pastor in Atlanta. He said, this is a little bit like painting the Rocky Mountains on a postcard. And that is a really good way to say it. So let me give you Four big questions that you can ask yourself, no matter if you're a very mature believer or if you're just brand new to following Jesus and you're like, I don't know a lot. These four questions are foundational to all of us when it comes to like reading our Bible and understanding it. Whenever you read something from the Bible, ask yourself this question, who, who, who wrote this and who was it written to? For the next four weeks, the same person wrote all four of these books that we're going to be reading. They were written as letters, okay? Uh, His name was Paul. And you may know a lot about Paul. You may not know anything about Paul. Most of us have heard a story that Paul was an opponent of Jesus, that he persecuted Christians, that he was a very passionate person, that then had a very significant life-changing experience with Jesus, and he moved from being an opponent to a proponent. He ended up going through this radical phase in his life where he went from death to life. And he became a great leader in the early church, wrote half of the New Testament. You may know him as a missionary. He was well known for sort of his journeys. He would take all over sort of the Roman world and where he would establish churches. But the most important thing you can never forget is at his heart, Paul was a pastor. Paul was a pastor. He started churches, and he helped people take their next door steps towards Jesus. And then he would go start more churches. He was a pastor. So who wrote this, Paul? Who was receiving it? Who was it written to? Well, it was written to four churches in an area called Galatia. Okay, it wasn't to an individual church. This is the four churches that Paul helped start in a place called Galatia. And these were his people. Now, it might help you to think of it in this terms. What if on Tim's last week of sabbatical, he wrote us a letter? I would probably stand up here and read that letter to you. And you'd be like, those are words from my pastor. When they got this letter from Paul, 
it would be like if we got a letter from Tim, okay? So who wrote it? Paul. Who received it? Some people in a church called Galatia or churches called Galatia. Then the next question is why? Why in the world did he write this? Well, let me tell you why he wrote it. Because something's very wrong in their church. There's something has happened and they're in danger. They have begun to start adopting some wrong beliefs in their faith and in following Jesus. They've, been, they've begun to adopt some wrong beliefs that are now creating some wrong behavior. And you can see the intensity in which he wants to address these issues. It starts in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. He goes on and in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And you'd be like, that doesn't sound like Tim. Uh, I get it. Here's what will happen is if you pick the book of Galatians up and you just go to read it right now, you might read it wrong. Because what you might see is a pastor who is angry at his people. Paul is not angry at the Galatians. Paul is scared for them. Paul is not angry at the Galatians. Paul is their pastor, and he is scared for them. Look, um, if you were to come by my house around 3 o'clock any day during the week, and it's sunny outside, you would probably see my son get off the bus, go into the garage, get a basketball, and start shooting basketball in our driveway. Now, I don't live in a big house. I live in a very normal house in a normal neighborhood with a normal driveway, which means periodically when my son misses, the ball goes into the road. So if you were walking your dog in my neighborhood and you didn't know who he was and you didn't know who I was and you just saw me yelling at my son, what are you doing? Get out of the road. Get back here. You'd be like, that is an angry old man. Get off my lawn. Turn the music down. Ah, you know. <laughs> but if you knew that's my son and I'm his father and he ran into the road without looking, you'd say, that's a scared dad who loves his son. If you don't read Galatians that way, you're going to read it wrong. So this week, as you approach reading Galatians, I need you to think of it as this way. This is a pastor who loves the people he's called to lead, but he's scared for them, and therefore he's intense. You might say this, um, that Paul's strong language is because of his strong love. Paul's strong language is for his strong love. So I said there's a who, there's a why, then there's a what. There's a what, okay? And the question becomes, what does he want them to do? You know, they read this letter together and they talk about this letter and then he wants them to do something in response. We'll talk about that. And then finally, there's the question, how does this apply to my life today? How does this apply? So who, why, what, and how? I think if I was going to try to explain the whole book of Galatians to you, I think it's easiest if I start with a picture. And I keep kind of referring to that picture. This is a picture of Mount Everest. Many of you, if I say Mount Everest without even thinking, this is the picture you think of. It is a massive mountain, the world's tallest mountain, right? If there was a person on the top of this, you would never be able to see them in this photo. I mean, we'd be minuscule, over 30,000 feet, right? Well, when we pick the book of Galatians up, we have to ask ourselves, how do I tackle this mountain? What do I do? Well, what I can tell you is that you can treat this book and you can say, there is a summit. There is a peak, there is a point, there is one big idea that we need to drive to, okay? And Paul would say the summit, the one big idea he wants you to get. So if you read Galatians this week, the question becomes, where do I see this word? You ready? Freedom. What does he want for us? Well, Paul wants for the Galatians and he wants for you and I to experience freedom in our life. You might say it this way, what is freedom? Well, real freedom occurs when we have a real rightness with God. 
Real freedom occurs in our life when we have real rightness with God. So all of the book of Galatians summits, it peaks, it comes to a point in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says this, it, is, it was for freedom. It was so that you have a right relationship with God the right way. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Um, if we were trying to unpack this, I said this is like climbing Mount Everest. There's an iconic photo of Mount Everest, the one we just saw, but this is another one you might think of. This is called Base Camp. And when someone comes to climb the mountain, they all have the same goal, right? Which is to get to the top and then to get back down. But they have to start at base camp. This is where people come and they live there. Sometimes they live there for months. And they're just trying to prepare their bodies for what they're going to go through. They're trying to acclimate to the elevation and the altitude and all the other things and the weather and the wind. They're just trying to acclimate. But when they're at base camp, they have to make a massive decision. They have to pick a path. They have to pick a path. Well, listen, if you and I are going to push towards having freedom in our life, that we're going to have a real relationship, a right relationship with our real and right God, if we're going to be right with him, we're going to experience that freedom, what path are we going to take to get there? And in the book of Galatians and in the entire Bible, we are given two options on a path to having a relationship with God. Two options, okay? And we got to take a look at both of these because one of them is not a real path that works, but it's a real option that you have. So here's the first option you have if you want to have a free and real and right relationship with God. I can do it on my own. I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody's help. I can do it on my own. Another way of saying this is that you can become self-righteous. Like righteous means that you are right with God and you can get right with God on your own. You do it through your good works. That really, in the end, I have done some bad things, but I've done a whole lot of good things, and my good's going to outweigh my bad. So I have a works-based rightness with God. And how did I do it? Well, I fulfilled God's law in my life. But the problem is you haven't fulfilled God's law. We probably don't even know God's law, because God's law, well, it has two major commandments. It's like two categories that they fall in. The first is to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as itself. And you're like, okay. And then he goes, okay, let me break that down. Let me give you 10. Don't steal, don't kill, don't lie. And he gives us the 10 commandments. Like, okay. And then he says, okay, I'll give you 600 more. And in the Old Testament, we find these 600 laws that we have to live by if we're going to be perfect with God. And you have a choice. Can you keep all of those laws on your own? Now, I know I can't, and let me tell you why. I can't because my life is full of relationships in this world. Relationships that are like this. They're horizontal, okay? And many of them are good, but some of them are not. And here's the truth. No matter what I do, I can't make some of these relationships right. If I can't make the horizontal relationships right, how am I going to make the vertical relationship right? I mean, I can't even fix this. How am I going to fix this? My wife and daughter went to Florida this week, took a little girl's trip before school starts back, and I learned something. Did you know at night the coffee doesn't magically make itself for the next morning? Like, uh, 
I woke up and there was no coffee. And um, I just did what everybody else did. I threw it away and bought a new one because I assumed it was broken. No, actually, my wife and I have a little rhythm. She makes the coffee at night. I drink it in the morning. It works good for us. I like it, okay? It's a good, good pattern. Here's the thing. I can barely make the coffee right. How can I make me right? But you have a choice. Can you do it? Can you be right with God on your own? The answer is no. It's a path that looks like it gets you to the peak, but it actually walks you right off the side of the cliff. So then you're given a second option. The second option is then I'm trusting in Jesus alone. So if the first option is self-righteousness, the second option is Christ-righteousness, meaning the rightness of Jesus by faith, I trust in him and God has given me grace. He applies it to my life. It's not my rightness that makes me right with God. It's Jesus' rightness that makes me right with him. Sometimes we call this faith-based rightness with God. So there's work-based and faith-based. Work-based doesn't work. Faith-based works always. It means that we are accepted by God, okay? Look what Paul says to the Galatians. He said, it was for freedom, what? That Christ set us free. Notice the language. He doesn't say, it was for freedom that you worked yourself to death. No, he says it's for freedom. How did you get that freedom? Through Christ, that Christ set you free. So listen, there are three things that we learn from the book of Galatians that apply to our lives as followers of Jesus. Okay, the very first one is this, is that when we trust in Jesus with our life, Jesus makes us totally right with God. Jesus makes us totally right with God. There's a big word, and you might actually see it if you read Galatians this week. It's called justification. Okay, that Jesus justifies us before God. Uh, justified, you may have grown up in church and been taught it means just as if I'd never sinned. That's kind of a way I was taught it. I never forgot that. But justification is a legal term. It means you're standing before a judge, and the judge has to make a decision, guilty or innocent, right or wrong. And justification means that the judge looks at you and says, innocent, right. It's a declaration. It is something that is said and spoke over you and then applied to your life. He says it in Galatians 2.16. He says, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified. We may be made right. How? By faith in Christ and not by works of the law. See, Paul's telling the church at Galatia, don't get it mixed up. You don't make yourself right. Only Jesus makes you right. But the thing about Jesus justifying you and God looking and saying, you are justified, that's not very loving. It's very legal. So you have to realize that Paul actually says, not only did Jesus make us totally right, Jesus makes us totally loved. Jesus makes us totally loved. Another way to say that we are totally loved is that he has adopted us. Adoption is when someone takes a child that is not naturally their own and makes a choice to place love and to welcome that child into their life. God takes his love for us and he says, I'm going to apply it to your life. And I'm going to make you not just totally right with me, I'm going to make you totally loved by me. In Galatians 4, Paul says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself so I could have in my life what's not naturally mine. Jesus fulfilled God's law. Why? On my behalf. 
And what effect does that have? So I can be made right with God and I can be loved by God. So Jesus makes me totally right. He makes me totally loved. You ready? Jesus makes me totally his. He makes us totally his. As we live our life, more and more every day, we begin to look more and more like the one we belong to. The fancy word for this is called sanctification, right? It's learning to live out your rightness before God. That's the easiest way to say justification, you're right. Sanctification, now go live out your rightness before God. He says right here in Galatians 5, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now I want to point something out. You notice the language? He says, we have crucified the flesh. The flesh is this stuff that wants to do things that God doesn't want for our life. And you notice what he says? He says, we haven't killed the flesh. We didn't decapitate the flesh. We crucified it. Crucifixion is a slow, painful process. It takes time. It goes with a struggle. Listen, the reason you struggle in your life is because you're still in this life. You won't in heaven. It's one of the great joys of heaven is you'll be free from your own desires. But as long as we are in this world, we're going to have this struggle in our life. That struggle is called sanctification. It is not an easy process, but it is good. So what do we see that Jesus does? He makes us totally right. He makes us totally loved. And in Galatians, you're going to see he makes us totally his. So when I trust in Jesus, what it means is this. It means that because I trusted in Jesus, I'm forgiven of the guilt of my past. Jesus' work for me is applied to all the times I couldn't do the work for myself. I'm forgiven of my past. Just a side note as one of your pastors. If you've got something in your life you're struggling to forgive yourself of that God's already forgiven you of, stop. Give it over to him. He's already forgiven you of it. Don't hold, your, hold it against yourself, okay? The work of Jesus applied to your life means that you're forgiven of your past. It also means that you're secure in spite of the fact that you might have some present struggles in your life. You're secure in spite of the fact you might have some present struggles. I was walking in the parking lot this morning, and um, as I was coming in, I actually said this out loud. I said, God, if I preach good today, if I preach good today, you don't love me more. And if I preach bad today, you don't love me less. Now, you, you might love me more or less, okay? I, I, I get, you might be like, oh, it's a long time before Tim gets back. I get it, okay? The truth is, is, is when I trust in what Jesus has done, it's done. And how, how I succeed or fail does not affect God's love or feelings towards me. He finds me fully acceptable because he found Jesus fully acceptable. So I'm forgiven of the guilt of my past. I'm secure in spite of the fact that sometimes I have present struggles. And I can be confident in my future with him forever. Why? Because even if I blow it in my life moving forward, he didn't. And when God said, I want you, I'm adopting you, I'm placing my rightness on you and my love on you, that was a permanent placement. It's non-revocable in our life. It's the beauty of being confident that I am forgiven of my past, I'm safe in my present, and I am confident of my future with him. And the question becomes like, how can all this be true? Well, it's true because of this, because the God of the Bible, he loves to bring wrong people into right relationship. And he loves to bring wrong people into right relationship. This is your story. This is my story. It's not that I was a right person he brought into a more right relationship. 
from a wrong person that he wanted to bring into a right relationship. It's what he does. It's who he is. So we keep reading in that sort of peak passage, Galatians 5.1. It says, it's for freedom Christ set us free, therefore. This is the transition moment in the statement, in the passage. This is the moment it goes from accuracy, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done, therefore, application. Now you need to do something in response to it. It moves us from accuracy to application. And basically what he says is what? He says, therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again. He's saying, plant your feet in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Really, I think what Paul is trying to say to them is this statement. Jesus set us free to make us free, and he wants us to stay free. Jesus set us free to make us free, and he wants us to stay free. What does he want us to stay free of? Well, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, he finishes, do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. What is this slavery? Remember, it's my inability to keep the law. And at this point, what happens is he starts pushing in on our lives. And he says, okay, you started a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus. But now have you started adding something to it? Have you started adding yourself to it? Or are you standing firm that it's really just Jesus that you are trusting in in your life? So I talked about Mount Everest at the beginning. And I said, look, there's this iconic photo. If you're down at base camp, you want to get to the summit. That's the goal of climbing the mountain, right? Is I want to, I want to get to the peak. I want to get to the mountaintop. I want to get to the summit. I want to get that all-important epic selfie. But I got to choose a path to get up to it. And we found there's only one path. And what is it? It's Jesus. It's the only way we can have freedom and rightness with God. Now we've gotten to the top. I've experienced. Now the question becomes, how do I get down? Like, what's our path down the mountain? What's the path down the mountain that we're going to take? And the question is, is, is it's really important because you're sitting in here and you've got to move from the mountaintop on Sunday back to your office on Monday. I used to teach college students on Sundays and I used to end all my sermons with a talk. I would say, okay, so now the Monday morning effect. That's what I used to call it, the Monday morning effect. And I'd say this is how it plays itself out. Uh, maybe another way to say is, it, is that you're moving from the summit in this room back to being a struggling parent in the parking lot. I was a pastor in Virginia, and I'll never forget, I spoke one time at our church, and then I went to get my two-year-old out of the preschool. And to my horror, as I was trying to get my two-year-old from the church to the car, they just decided to lay down on the ground in the middle of the covered pickup in front of the entire church. You would have thought it was a middle school fight in a lunchroom, okay? The whole church showed up and just surrounded it while my kid's having a meltdown in the middle of the parking lot. And they're looking at me like, oh, you just preached it good. Let's see you do it. Come on, pastor, right? I do not remember what happened, but I do remember this statement. I looked at them. I said, I love you, but I do not negotiate with terrorists. Get up. All right. And an old man goes, there you go, pastor. All right. And uh, here's the truth. You're trying to figure out like, oh, this is beautiful. Like Jesus came to give me right relationship with a real God. But what difference does that make on a Monday? How do I apply that to my life when I get home with my family who's not with me this morning, but we're gonna eat Sunday lunch. Like what difference does that make? Well, listen, when you leave this room, you've got a decision. How are you gonna respond to Jesus in your daily life? And there's two paths you must avoid, okay? Two paths. The first means, the first is this. You have to avoid a path that says, what Jesus did is mostly enough. 
Like, I believe you got me to the 99-yard line, Jesus, but I'm going to punch it in that last one. Like, like, Jesus, it's like my car, it died, and I have a manual, right? I, I, you pushed me, but I got it going. I'm good. Hey, thanks, thanks. Thanks, Jesus. The reality is that's called legalism. It means you trusted Jesus to start, and then you move back into trusting yourself to make you legally right with God. Uh, might be easy to show you an illustration of what legalism looks like. Anybody have one of these in their gym? The Stairmaster, right? I don't know, just weirdos, that's who get on it. Okay, but here's what happens, right? You get on it, and you start moving, and you're doing all the right movements in all the right direction, and you get nowhere. The only thing you get is exhausted. That is legalism. That is when you say, I've started by trusting in Jesus, but then I'll take it on myself. You're just getting on a religious, spiritual stairmaster. Don't. That's not a good path. That path walks you off the side of the mountain. Uh, I love what David Platt says. He says, you don't need Jesus plus this or that. We need Jesus, period. We don't need Jesus plus this or that. We need Jesus, period. It's not Jesus plus I had a quiet time. It's not Jesus plus I came to church 1.2 times this month. It's not Jesus plus I didn't cheat on my wife or my taxes. No, it's Jesus, period. And that's it. Here's the second path we have to avoid. If the first is, is that I can do it on my own and I'm going to go back to doing it on my own, that what Jesus did is mostly enough. The second is this, is what Jesus did is enough so it doesn't actually matter what I do. If the first is called legalism, this is called license. I always think of Parks and Rec when Ron says, oh, I have a permit. And it just says, I can do whatever I want, right? This is not what it means to follow Jesus. That, oh, well, I've trusted in Jesus. Now I can do whatever I want. I have a license in my life. Here's the problem. I do have tendencies to live my new life with my old habits, though. I have tendencies to live my new life with my old habits. But it doesn't give me a license to do that. Um, a way to think about this is that following Jesus isn't like an elevator. You push the button, the door opens, you go, I need Jesus, next stop, heaven. We know that can't be true. We know that that's not the way it works. We know it's not right because Jesus didn't come just to love us and save us. He actually came to lead us and to be our Lord. Jesus didn't come just to love and save you. Jesus came to lead and to be your Lord. That's what he wants for our life. He wants us to follow him not just ultimately, but every day. So what's the proper path? These two paths, we have to reject them, that Jesus is mostly enough, and Jesus is enough, so it doesn't matter what I do. So the proper path is what we call lordship. So you have legalism, license, and lordship. Lordship is this, is we want to live a life that reflects our Lord. We want to live a life that reflects that Jesus is our Lord. And you may ask, well, what does that look like if legalism is the stairmaster, all this movement and motion, but it gets me nowhere, and then license, complete, absolute freedom, is some elevator I just go on this ride on, then what's it really look like to live with Jesus as my Lord? Maybe it looks like this. Anybody see those? Those are escalators. You know what happens? You step on the escalator, and what's it do? It pulls you forward. You also get the joy of participating in the climb. Are you going to get to the top because you walked it? No, you're going to get to the top because the escalator is going to take you there. But do you get to participate in the climb? You sure do. This is what grace applied to our life looks like. This is what lordship looks like. It looks like you get to step on and Jesus moves you forward, moves you towards right relationship with God, and you get to participate. And here's the good news. Even when you're tired and you just lean on the 
arm of the escalator, maybe even if you sit down on it, it's just going to keep pulling you forward. That's grace. That's lordship. The question that I find a lot of people run into is, well, how do I know which one is true in my life? How do I know which one is true? And Paul actually answers this as he's walking them from Galatians 5. He says it's really easy to know if lordship is happening. He tells them this, do a fruit check. Just do a fruit check. He's going to go on and he's going to say, look, your life as a follower of Jesus is going to be characterized by two things. You're going to be characterized by what we call works of the flesh or fruit of the spirit. Works of the flesh, there's a big long list of them, but they break down into three categories. How are you doing with your body, your mouth, and your mind? How are you doing with your body, how are you doing with your mouth, and how are you doing with your mind? Fruit of the Spirit, these are things that characterize the fact that something inside of you has changed, so something outside of you is different. These are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the reason the fruit is so important, it's not that the fruit saves you. It's that our fruit proves our root. See, you and I look at a tree, you look at an apple tree or an orange tree or any tree that produces fruit, and you wouldn't say, that tree's alive because it has fruit. You would say, the fruit shows me that tree is alive. And if your kid said, why is that tree alive? You'd say, because there's a root you can't see. It's the root that's making the fruit. We can never confuse that the fruit is what saves us. It's not. It's the root of Jesus that saves us. But the outcome of that root in our life is this fruit that we get to see and experience. Paul calls it that we are saved by faith, not by works. You ready? We're saved by faith, root, not by works, fruit. But he might add to that and say this, but we are saved by a faith that works. We take the path down the mountain that says, if Jesus did this for me, then I'm going to respond to him in my life. So I guess as we close and we say, you're going out of here, what do you do? You're going to read the book of Galatians this week, and you're going to say, this is a a pastor who loves his people, and he's scared for them. And he wants them to do what? He wants the same thing for them he wants for me. He wants them to have freedom in their relationship with God. In order to have that freedom, they got to trust in Jesus alone. That's the path up. And then they got to live with Jesus as their Lord. That's the path down. So I think Paul would close with two big questions. Here's the first one. What am I trusting in? This morning, as you leave, as you read Galatians this week, ask yourself, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Or are you trusting in Christ mostly? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Or are you trusting in Christ mostly? Is it what he did in him alone? Or he get it to the 99-yard line and you punched it in for the score? So what are you trusting in? You know, he was so adamant with the church of Galatia. He says four verses later, he says, if you trust in anything other than Jesus, then you didn't even trust in Jesus. That's how serious Paul is. That's how scared he is for the people. That's why this question is so important is what are you trusting in in your life? Here's the second question. Is my life in alignment with my Lord? And I say I'm a follower of Jesus, but is my life in alignment with my Lord? Because that's really what it means to shape the way a city views church. It doesn't mean that we say the right things and sing the right things and preach the right things in this room and believe the right things. It means that when we leave and we go back to our office and 
to our family and to our neighborhood and to our team and to our dorm and all the other places God sends us, it means that there is an external change because an internal change has occurred. It looks like something is in charge of my life other than me, that my life is in alignment with my Lord. I prayed all week, all night last night, all morning this morning, a simple prayer that as we sing this last song together, that we would consider this, that this would be the statement that's true of our church, that we would be a church that finds our true freedom in the grip of our God's grace. And my freedom's not me. My freedom's because of Jesus. And your freedom, it's not you. Your freedom's because of Jesus. And our freedom as a church, it's not because we're good. It's because he's good. It's not because I did it. It's because he did it. And when he does it, it's done. So it's our joy to respond and say, then I just want to respond to you with my life and say, I'm going to stand firm in you and you alone, Jesus. And I want my life to be in alignment with you. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. God, I pray right now that you would just speak and work and move. You do what only you can do in a way that only you can do it. If any of us are standing in anything other than you, Jesus, that we would just be willing to fall on our knees and say, no, no, no. I've messed all this up. Jesus, I'm sorry I brought anything other than you into my rightness with God. It's you and you alone. And then, God, if there's anything in our life that you're saying, hey, that's just out of alignment, would you give us a willingness to respond and say, no, I want to live in the relationship you've called me to live. I want to live with you, Jesus, as my Lord. God, we ask that we would just be characterized as people who have true freedom because we've been gripped by your grace. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.